this morning in our worship service, we have very intentionally begun by lifting up our voices in praise to the Lord in honor of His majesty and glory. And then very pointedly, uh, we're led in prayer by Brother Chuck, who reminded us who we are before Him, that we are sinners in need of His grace, and we thank Him for that grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after doing that, we've been celebrating our life in Christ, and now we are coming under the teaching of the Word. And, and really, what we have done this morning is a recapitulation of the pattern that ought to be going on in our lives all the time. And so this message that we have here in Matthew 3 really finds us exactly where we are. I I think it's one of the most well-known yet puzzling portions of Matthew's gospel, the baptism of Jesus, which according to the way I'm approaching Matthew, I'm calling the baptism of the King. But in order for us to fully appreciate this baptism that takes place in verses 13 through 17, we need to set the baptism in the context that we have already seen in the first place. And as Mike has asked us, or asked the Lord to bless us as we look at the Word, let's give our attention and allow the Lord to work in our hearts and our minds as we look again, uh, starting at the very beginning of this chapter in Matthew chapter 3, and let's review just a little bit of what we've seen, and we'll set the baptism of Jesus in its proper context in Matthew chapter 3. John the baptizer is sent by God as the last Old Testament prophet to proclaim the coming king. And when the king comes to bring in his kingdom, he will bring salvation, and at the same time, he will bring judgment to those who have not turned to him. And you need to be on the right side of that divide. So John preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that comes from God, is at hand. And that word repent is at the heart of John's preaching, and it's at the heart of verses 1 through 12 in the text. It represents the response that was needed from the people in order for the king to save them and welcome them into the kingdom instead of destroying them as enemies. It's the cry that Isaiah spoke of when he prophesied that this voice would come into the wilderness, verse 3, crying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is, prepare a direct path for the king to be welcomed and received by turning from what the king despises and embrace him and loving him. As we said a couple of weeks in a row, the coming of Jesus is paved with repentant, righteous hearts of those who submit to him. So for two weeks, we have been focusing on John's call to repentance, which has been teaching us several profound truths. First, we saw that repentance is about turning from sin and unto God by faith turning one direction from one direction to another direction. When we turn from the practice of unrighteousness to the practice of righteousness, when we, by faith, turn from rejecting or ignoring God's will to living lives that strive to follow God's will. Repentance is a turning. And I challenged you last week, ask God to help you identify areas of your life where you have to say, you know what, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm going to turn back to God. And as I think it was already mentioned this morning, we, we have a way of ignoring this, sort of setting it aside. 
And we need to be saying like we just sang, abhorring all my sin and adoring only him. And God can give us the grace to live that way. Repentance takes place when we place our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation to begin with. We have to turn from sin and embrace him as savior. But after that, we become people who continue to repent and turn from wrong to right whenever it is pointed out in our lives. And this is one of the ways we actually know that the spirit of God is alive in us. But we saw another profound truth about repentance, and that is Repentance takes place always in the context of humility. And we see this clearly in John's ministry. John is calling people to repent out in the wilderness, not in a beautiful, ornate tabernacle, which there were plenty of those in Israel at that time, not in some of the popular urban centers, not in the Jerusalem temple courtyard in the shadow of the magnificent temple that Herod the Great had begun to renovate. It was still undergoing renovation by the time it was destroyed in 70 AD, actually. But in the wilderness, John was preaching. Beyond the Jordan, just a little north of the Dead Sea, not even in the lush places of the north, but in the hilly, rocky desert area where homeless and nomadic people Lived. And when John says later that God is able to take these stones and raise up children to Abraham, there is a lot of stones around there as visual aids. And besides this, John was dressed funny. It says in verse 4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, not some priestly robe, not some fancy garment. His food was locust and wild honey. I mean, we might feel embarrassed if someone we know uh, saw John having a conversation with us much less submitting to his ministry. And yet, verses 5 and 6 tell us that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They submitted to the ministry of John. They believed he was the forerunner, telling them of the Savior. And that introduces us to a third profound truth about repentance that we saw already, that repentance involves a confessing of sin, admitting how we have specifically sinned and a commitment to turn away from it, which is signaled in this text um, by baptism. You weren't hearing John preach about the coming king and making some quiet decision to obey God better. Your baptism was signaling to all who saw you get in the water, turning and going to another path, that you were coming back or coming to God in the first place in anticipation of the coming Messiah. So here come the people in droves. They're seated or standing near the Jordan, some perhaps on the other side, and they're listening to John's preaching. The Jordan in that location actually may have been somewhat narrow. And then John would call to them to confess their sins and turn to God and be baptized. So the people would press into the water. And John had his disciples, no doubt. We learn that there are disciples of John in the Gospels. He probably has his disciples helping with crowd control. And John would motion for someone to come. And here was a man perhaps from Jericho. And he would confess his sins. And John plunged him under, as a Baptist would do. And here he would motion again, and here comes a woman, maybe who had traveled all the way from Magdala near Galilee, and she would confess the sin she was turning 
from and signal her turn to God in hope of her Messiah through submitted, submitting to being placed under the water. And, and this went on day after day, men and women and children, no doubt, whole families perhaps, those from Jerusalem and from Bethany and from Emmaus and Hebron and Arimathea and from Bethlehem, both wide and far, people coming to turn from sin in great humility, confessing their sins and committing themselves to God. It must have been a very emotional and joyful time, people coming in and, and tearfully confessing publicly what they have done and, and, and welcoming the Savior, the King. But in the midst of this wonderful celebration of souls returning to God in anticipation of the coming Messiah, John looks up and lining the Jordan River bank on the Jerusalem side, I always imagine, stands the religious elites, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are apparently not come to respond to John's call for repentance. They're there to investigate. They're there to observe the event, to find out if there's anything respectable in it, to find out how John is drawing such a crowd. And here we discover a fourth profound truth about repentance that we saw last week, namely that repentance is crushed by an elitist attitude. You will never live a life of repentance if you see yourself above repentance if you see yourself as better than those who need to repent. We would never say, oh, I'm above repentance, but we think we have to you know, really do something bad to, come, to, to make it come to that. So John cries out to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a lot of sarcasm, I think, in his voice there. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to yourselves to say, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The Pharisees and Sadducees had at least two elitist claims that crushed their idea of repentance. Their first elitist claim is that they already kept the Jewish law with perfection. Everything we know about them leads us to believe that that's what they thought. At least in their minds, they kept it with perfection. They had figured out a way to appear perfectly righteous in front of other people. I mean, what is there to confess? But the reality was that they had just as much sin in their lives as the next guy. Jesus would later refer to them as whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. People who outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, Jesus says, are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, greed and self-indulgence. We read that text last week in Matthew 23. Repentance is crushed within us. When we think that living up to our own standard of righteousness leaves us with nothing to confess. So John tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not the fruit of your own standard of righteousness. We can all produce that kind of fruit. But the fruit that is produced in our lives, when we are honest about ourselves in front of a holy God, about how sinful we are, and we are in the habit of confessing our sin to him and turning back to him, our lives produce a different kind of fruit, a genuine fruit. When we live this way, fruits of kindness and patience, and humility and true goodness. It's really hard for us to be down on everybody else because they're not as holy as we are. We're constantly having to confess our true sin before God. But John knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees' elitist claim 
to their standard of righteousness would crush any thought of their stooping so low as to come into the water with John and be baptized. What would all of these sinners standing around think of me if I actually got into that water? That's what they thought. I don't know if we've ever thought something like that. If I go forward, if I show that I have a problem, what is everybody going to think? It tells us whether or not we have built this facade that needs to be ripped away. These Pharisees and Sadducees would have to admit that they were not as holy as they pretended to be. And of course, the other elitist claim that these religious leaders made is that they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. And they were certain that God would never keep a genuine child of Abraham out of the kingdom. But John reveals the false nature of that claim when he says that God can make children of Abraham from these stones if he wanted to. God is not impressed with what family we come from or what social status we are in or uh, how respectable we might appear to others. He wants us to admit who we really are in his sight and turn back to him and know his forgiveness. And John may seem like he's being very harsh here in his response to these religious elites. In fact, without being familiar with the text, when you read it, you're kind of surprised that he just takes off after them so harshly. But he's not really uh, here uh, refusing to create safe spaces just so that they feel uncomfortable. John knows that judgment is coming. And that brings us to a final profound truth that we saw last week about repentance that we see in this account, turning from sin and coming to God is an opportunity that one day will expire. And woe to those who do not respond to God's first call. Because the kingdom is at hand, judgment is at hand. So John says in verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. It's about to be chopped down. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, that's the, the fruit in keeping with repentance that he just mentioned, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And fire is always metaphorical for judgment in the Gospels. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, that fork that winnows the, the wheat from the chaff. His winnowing fork is already in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's John's preaching in this text. So this is the scene that Matthew has painted for us. The ministry of John to announce the kingdom and the judgment to call people to turn and embrace the king before it's too late to confess their sins and turn to God and prepare their hearts for the Messiah. And here we are in 2024, close to two millennia removed from this event. But it is still true today that unless we turn to God in faith, by trusting in the person of Jesus, his death for our sin and his resurrection, we will face that judgment. The winnowing fork will come. And we today need to return to God. So John is welcoming people to step up beside him and confess and signal their commitment to God through baptism when all of a sudden something happens that John the baptizer never expected. 
John is motioning for the next person to step forward, and when he looks up, he realizes that the person stepping up to him in the water is none other than his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. No fanfare, no great caravan. No special announcement, no trumpet. Jesus is merely one of the crowd. In fact, it's curious how unremarkable the gospel writers present Jesus' baptism. Luke records the actual baptism as a mere subordinate clause. He writes in Luke 3.23, Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, dot, 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 and it goes on. And that's it. But you can tell by John's reaction that this is no small event. In verse 14, Matthew says, John would have prevented him. It's a very strong verb that means to call a stop to something. To stand obstinately and stubbornly in the way of something. John says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to baptize you. Because there's no reason for it. It's just wrong. Now, I think we understand why it seems unthinkable that Jesus would want to come for baptism, right? I mean, he's the sinless son of God. He's the virgin-born Emmanuel. Matthew's already taught us that. Of all the people at the river that day from Capernaum or Magdala or Bethlehem or Jerusalem or, or Hebron or from all over the land of Israel, there's one person there who didn't need to be there, and that is this man from Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. He had nothing to confess. He was already fully committed to God to do the work of God and to fulfill the mission of God. But we do not know that this is John's reason for stubbornly refusing to baptize Jesus. In other words, John may not be reacting to the theological tension of a sinless Savior. In fact, we don't even know if John even thought about Jesus in those later theological terms. Not yet, at least. Although John would have assumed that the Messiah possessed a, a huge amount of righteousness. But John may have been reacting to the moral conundrum that Jesus' baptism would introduce. I mean, do you see how backward this is? Jesus was the one who had the winnowing fork in his hand. He was the one who would bring judgment upon the unrepentant and welcome those who were turning to him through repentance. How could John administer this baptism of repentance to the very person whose coming the people were repenting for? In fact, have you ever thought of this? John didn't know that Jesus was going to show up this way. I mean, they didn't meet together and plan a big reveal party or anything like that. If we had to guess, most likely, most likely, John thought that Jesus was going to arrive with this display of power ready to judge his enemies. I mean, he's preaching and warning. This is coming, you guys. The kingdom is here. The judge is coming because the king is coming. He's preaching day after day, and he thinks when, when he comes, this is going to be good. This is really going to be good. You better get in the water now. You better confess now. He's going to bring the wheat into the barn. He's going to burn the chaff. So when John looks up and sees Jesus coming to him for baptism, meekly, without announcement, with no fuss. 
He is the most shocked of anyone standing there. The people waiting for their turn probably started to wonder what was going on. I mean, maybe they, they started whispering to one another, Who, who's that guy John's talking to? What's he saying there? Is there something the matter? I don't think he wants to baptize him. They couldn't figure it out. But all we learn from John is that his struggle with baptizing Jesus is personal. John says literally, if you look at the text, I myself need to be baptized by you. And you are coming to me? The first time I performed a baptism, it was for a dear brother who was 30 years my senior, who had been raised to be Presbyterian all his life, so he had come to faith in Christ as a boy, but before that he had been sprinkled in the Presbyterian church. And now late in life, he had come to believe by conviction that as a believer, he needed to be immersed. He, had to, he needed to be baptized as a, as a believer to declare his allegiance to Christ. So I baptized him. And he became our church member, and later he became one of my deacons. But I was so nervous about baptizing him, not only because it was my first baptism, but I was baptizing a brother in Christ who had been faithfully walking with the Lord longer than I had been alive. And I told him that. I said, you scare me, I told him. But I baptized him, and it was a humbling experience for him and for me. But it gave me an inkling, I think, of what John must have been feeling, why John would stand in the way of baptizing the Son of God. John, the water baptizer, was being asked to baptize the one who had baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He recognized immediately the great role reversal here. But Jesus tells John in verse 15, let it be so now. John, 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 you need to baptize me. Let this happen. Allow this for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew says, then he consented. He allowed it. Same verb. Jesus said, allow it. Matthew says, he allowed it. He baptized Jesus. So, Matthew continues in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, in our remaining time this morning, I would like for us to grasp just a little of the significance of what is taking place here in the baptism of Jesus. What is the point of Jesus' baptism? I mean, why did Jesus insist that John baptize him? Jesus tells us the answer in Matthew's text, but it's, it's somewhat cryptic. It is fitting, it is appropriate, John, that you baptize me. For in baptizing me, we fulfill all righteousness. In a sense, Jesus is saying, John, you should do this because it's right to do this. Which is why if you pick up any given commentary and then read another one and another one and another one, I can tell you there's lots of different reasons people give for why Jesus came for baptism. You would think they've got this figured out by now, but there's still so much mystery in the scripture. The word righteousness is found seven times in Matthew's gospel. Every time we see the word righteousness in Matthew's gospel, it is found on the lips of Jesus. 
He's speaking it. Once here, once in Matthew 21, with a reference to John the Baptist's ministry, and the other five times in the Sermon on the Mount, in words that you would recognize, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. And Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness is to be consumed always with doing what is fitting in the eyes of a perfectly righteous God. To hunger for righteousness, to seek after it, so that to do the right thing that pleases God at every moral crossroads is what fulfills all righteousness. It's not that this one act is going to fulfill all righteousness, but this is one of the acts along the way of fulfilling or filling up the righteous life that God the Father wanted Jesus to live. In what then does that consist? What consumes the Lord Jesus in this text. What consumes you and me this morning? Do we yearn to do the next right thing? Not just if we happen to stumble into it, but we actually think ahead about that. Thinking and doing and loving what delights the heart of a righteous father. But Jesus' statement only leads us to ask the same question another way. What was Jesus' baptism necessarily, or why did it necessarily fulfill all righteousness? Well, there are at least three wonderful ways that Jesus' baptism helps fulfill the Father's righteous will for his Son, the King, who came to save us. And I know, by the way, that we're more toward the end of our time, and I've got three wonderful, three wonderful uh, ways that it this, this baptism fulfills all righteousness, but really I'm not going to spend much time on each of these. Uh, when we see these wonderful ways, I, I think you'll agree it causes us to love the Lord more as our Savior. And, and it causes us to follow his example more. We get it. He, he never asked us to do anything he hasn't already done. So what are these three wonderful ways that Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness. The first one is this, through a humble identification. We see Jesus coming to be baptized and we respond as John does. You shouldn't be here, Lord. This is not for you. You have no sins to confess. You have nothing to turn from. And yet, here he is going into the water, submitting to the baptism of repentance. Why did he do it? Because Jesus came to save those who needed to repent. And he was at home among those who were turning to the Father. If anyone was justified standing on the shore and looking on as the Pharisees and Sadducees had set themselves up, it was Jesus. He could have stood there like the Pharisees and Sadducees, inspecting the troops, seeing who was turning to him through faith noting who was coming into the kingdom, giving approving nods. But it should put each of us to shame to realize that the only one who had the right to stand aloof came eagerly and willingly into the water, taking his place alongside sinners with no elitist attitude whatsoever. What was he doing being baptized 
with no sins to confess. Well, the same thing he would be doing on the cross with no sins of his own to confess. The cross was not just an instrument of his death. It was an instrument of execution for crimes committed. And Jesus had no crimes of his own. And one hanging there who was executed with him made the observation, we are being executed for crimes we committed, but this man has done nothing wrong. Just like people could have said in the river that day. Jesus hung there and died, not a victim, not a martyr. He gave himself for our sins. Dying for us, identifying with us, representing us. And in the same way that Jesus would ultimately die for sins that were not his own, here in the water he submits to a baptism of repentance for sins that were not his own. Alistair Begg, which by the way has a remarkable sermon on Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus, remarks that some people think the purpose of the church is only for them to come together, to have their own community, to read a certain book, sing certain kinds of songs so they can escape from whatever scumbags are still roaming in the culture. But he said, if this is how Jesus would have seen himself, he never would have become our savior. He would not have come in the flesh to be with the likes of us. And he certainly would have never gotten in the Jordan River that day. But praise God, this is not how Jesus thought about us. If you and I had been in the water that day, coming to repent of our sins and declaring our commitment to God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, would have been with us in the water. And we love him all the more for it. But his example convicts us that we cannot stand aloof on the shoreline of our culture, looking on at sinners with an elitist mindset, unwilling to associate with them. We must be willing to embrace the lost and live with them and show them what it looks like to repent and follow Jesus. Jesus' baptism helped to fulfill all righteousness because it was a humble identification with those whom he loved and those he came to save. But there's another wonderful way that Jesus' baptism helps to fulfill all righteousness, not only simply through a humble identification, but also through a submissive dedication. Remember what we saw earlier about the baptism of repentance? The dynamic of repentance or turning from sin back to God is both a confession of sin and a commitment to follow the Father's will. Yes, Jesus had no sin to confess. But by going through the water of baptism, he was declaring his submissive dedication to the Father's will for his life and work. It was already in his heart. He was already committed to it, but he was declaring it. And what was that work? Later, Jesus would say, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And he lived out that mission in multiple ways, in ways that often puzzled people. He was criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Some of the most unsavory people followed him. He became close with the poor. He went around healing people and meeting needs and always insisting that he was there to do the will of the Father. John the Baptist was bewildered by this. It's remarkable. 
Like I said earlier, he probably thought that Jesus was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and reign with his enemies under his feet. He's preaching this message. He's waiting for it to happen. Jesus' disciples spent three whole years with him, and they still thought that. And of course, we know from reading Revelation that Jesus will return in that fashion. He is going to come, a glorious king, and overthrow his enemies and welcome us into the kingdom. But his mission in his first coming was remarkably different. Here is Isaiah's suffering servant. Here is one who will say, I am meek and lowly of heart, and through me you will find rest for your souls. Yet soon after Jesus began his active ministry, John was arrested and put into prison by none other than Herod Antipas, the son of the Herod, who tried to murder Jesus when he was a a baby boy. And John thought, wait a minute. What am I doing here? I'm in prison, but the king has arrived, and I'm on his side. I was the prophet who was chosen to announce him. I was literally born for this purpose. If he's really the king, why am I a captive to the enemy? Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. And this must have been an emotionally low point in John's life, a time of real discouragement, because he had baptized Jesus and had heard the Father from heaven identifying Jesus as the Son of God. And yet Matthew 11 says that John sends word through his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one coming? Or should we look for another? What I thought you would be doing, you're not doing. Did I miss something? Was I just the forerunner to another forerunner? Because this is not the way I thought things were going to end. And and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see in here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news, the gospel, preached to them. This is why Jesus came. This was his mission. He came for the blind and the lame and the poor and the diseased and the dead. And this moment in Jesus's life, his baptism, marks the beginning of his ministry. And after a 40-day period of testing in the wilderness, which begins Matthew chapter 4, Jesus would serve the people he came to save while moving every day closer and closer to submissively giving himself to the Father and to the world as the crucified Savior. And so again, I wonder if we see our own lives in the same fashion Jesus will say in chapter 16, verse 24 of Matthew, that the one who comes after him must also deny himself and take up his cross and follow him, a submissive dedication for sure. Yet it's easy for us with the cares and distractions of the world to be satisfied that we are carving out time to add the will of the Father to our already packed schedules. But what Jesus models for us is a life that is submissively dedicated to one path and everything we do is found on that path. These are wonderful ways that Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness. They help us to love him and they challenge us through a humble identification with sinners and a life submissively dedicated to serve them and to bring them to the Father. There's one final way 
And this is not what Jesus does. But it's how the Father responds to his devotion. All righteousness is fulfilled through a divine affirmation. God the Father delighted with Jesus' humble identification and his submissive dedication breaks into the phenomenal world blending for a few moments in time and space things above with things below. Matthew reports, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God and John saw it too. He reports this in the gospel of John. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. Here the heavens are opened in a small way like they will be rolled back in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes to reign. But descending from this otherworldly terror in the sky is not yet a conquering king, but a gentle spirit in some form like a dove and resting upon Jesus. This was the visible anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. After this moment, everything Jesus does in his ministry, beginning in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, is done through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Then the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's one of the most precious displays of the Trinity in all the Bible. Son and Father and Spirit together, co-equal co-eternal, one substance and power, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being and yet distinguishable in their mission and relationships. So the Father speaks as the Spirit descends. Here he is. This is my Son, whom I love. And here is a great mystery. Jesus is identified by the Father not because he comes at this time in some glorious, respectable fashion in the eyes of the onlookers. He is recognized and honored by the Father because the Father is pleased with him in his humility. And it takes so much sometimes for us to stoop down just a little. Because of his humble identification with sinners and his submissive dedication to the Father's will, God the Father declares... This is my son. And like Jesus, our Lord, following his example, we are also called to a humble identification and a submissive dedication as we await our own divine affirmation. And that will come to us someday. Well done, good and faithful servant. And may the life and message of Christ our Savior motivate us to turn from sin and embrace the Father's will and live our lives for the Father's glory and for the Father's good pleasure. Father, we are grateful.